transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. And now here's our new stanza for this morning. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, and let the bones uh, which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. I'm going to do something a little bit different this morning. We are going to actually make our way through the stanza at a pretty quick pace. Probably a little bit more than half the sermon. We're just going to walk through this stanza, try to study it, try to make some really important observations. And then what I want to do at the end is leave time. And I have a few examples of just sin that would be typical, uh, that's typical uh, maybe at your age. And we can just start to think about what does it look like to see inward purity with some of these typical sins. And so it's just going to be hopefully helpful, just um, kind of conversations that we just never outgrow. I'm trying to apply it to, to, to your age, and you think, oh, man, what do you know about being a teenager? Well, it's been a while, but I was a teenager, and so I know what it's like, and I want to try to apply it to you and help, help you. But what's so sweet about the Word of God was we look at verses 5 through 9. It's totally transcendent. It's totally timeless. And I mean, this truth, it, I, no one outgrows it. No one outgrows it. Um, I could preach the same sermon to a retirement community. And maybe the illustrations would be different, but it's the same truth. We all need it. And so what I love about this is here's an expression of a response to sin that is timeless. And it's just David says, you know what I need here? I need something much more significant than change of circumstances or a change of behaviors. I need inward purity. Verse 5, David starts with behold. Verse 6, David says it again, behold. Okay, now when you read your Bible and you see that word behold, just think, it's like an exclamation point. It's almost like an exclamation point at the beginning of the sentence. Like, check this out. (laughs) David's sitting there saying, now watch this. And what he does in verses 5 and 6 is he almost kind of puts two hands out there to us and says, all right, students, behold this, and also on the other hand, look at this. Because these two statements are, are really quite distinct. In verse 5, notice what he's saying. On the one hand, David says, check this out. I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. What David is saying is, he's saying, look at this. Look at who I am by nature. Listen, you you might be able to pinpoint the first time you told a lie. You might be able to pinpoint the age when you first remember disobeying your parents. You might be able to remember exactly when that was. But this verse is so helpful. If we're going to respond to our sin rightly, we dare not think, ooh, I became a liar at seven and I became disobedient at one and a half. We didn't become liars at seven and disobedient at one and a half. And we, weren't, we didn't become liars and disobedient when we were born. We were liars and disobedient when we were conceived. This is actually really profound. 
if I'm going to respond rightly to my sin, I, I would be so superficial to look at my sin and say, oh, I did something wrong. Good thing I can change that and make up for it. No, the solution is, look, that's just a symptom of who I am by nature. You know, you remember last night when I told you about when I first became a Christian? I was about 18 years old. I was in school in Chicago. And one of the things that I was really impressed by was I started to realize early on in my Christian walk, I started to realize, you know, I have a lot of sins. Like if I just took a piece of paper and I, start, I tried to write down every single sin I'd ever committed, it would have been a long, 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 long list. And what impressed me early on was I began to realize that there's something way worse than the fact that I just have a really, really long list. What's worse than my sins is my sin. What's worse than the sum total of all the actions that I could have committed that would be a crime against God was the fact that by nature, that's just who I am. I remember in high school, I, um, I, I wasn't uh, characteristically a liar. Um, so I could have easily looked at other guys that I, I, I play. I love football. It was my, my, my loves in high school was football. And I could, have, I could have pointed the finger at other guys on the team who told more lies than me or were more comfortable telling lies than me. But I remember one time distinctly lying to my dad. I, um, I borrowed his pickup and I took a turn way too fast. And I got the thing sideways and I knocked the tire off of the rim. And he said, he, he asked me very directly, he said, hey, John, were you messing around with my truck? And I said, no. And if you'd asked me then, John, are you a liar? I would have said, no, I'm not a liar. I just told one lie. You can see the problem, right? David's saying, behold, I, can't, I, was, I was brought forth in iniquity. So the fact that I told a lie proves that my nature is, I am by nature a liar. Worse than the fact that I told one lie is that I'm by nature a liar. Because if I imagine my only problem was at the age of 16, I told my dad one lie, well then I can just stop lying and I'm okay, which is a, another lie. The problem is I'm a liar by nature. I need purity in the innermost being. I need purity at the core of who I am. I don't have that. That's totally different than not doing bad things. So he says, look at this. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. It's important, students, that if you're going to respond rightly to your sin, you need to point your finger at yourself. You need to say, what this means is, what I'm seeing is the effect of who I am. Remember what Jesus said? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, if I said it, if I thought it, if I did it, then that's the reflection. That's the accurate portrayal of what's going on on the inside. How do I know what's going on on the inside? How do I know who I am by nature? By what I think, by what I do, by what I say. That's how I know what's going on in the innermost being. It's invisible until I act on it. And when I act on it, you better guarantee that that was who I am by nature. Now, verse 6 says something totally opposite. Behold. So it's kind of like David says, okay, check this out. This is who we are by nature. Now, behold, this is what God wants from us. Verse 6, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Wow. God desires truth to reign, to dwell, to rest in your innermost being. 
Um, let, me just, let me just do something here for a second. You see that word there, innermost being? Yeah, it's, it's a phrase in English. It's one word in the Hebrew. Just interesting that, you know, David doesn't use a word like brain. Think about that for a second. Why don't you just say brain? You desire truth in the brain. You can see the difference, can't you? Because guess what? I had a lot of truth in my brain all the way up until I was a Christian at 18. I had quite a bit of truth in my brain. But I did not have truth in my innermost being. Here's what happens. The difference is one is known and the other is embraced and welcomed and received. It's believed. That's the difference here. Truth must be believed, it must be cherished, it must be embraced, it must be how I live, it must be the inner, my inner functioning must be truth. So I was thinking about this and I thought, you know, kind of like we did yesterday, last night with Psalm 36, and we, we kind of personified transgression, you know, as whispering in our ear, David really personifies it that way. What if we personified truth? Can we personify truth? We can. In fact, we don't have to. It, truth is personified. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So as we look at verse 6, here's what I want you to do. I want you to picture Jesus Christ himself in your innermost being. And as we're examining who we are by nature and what God wants for us, if Christ is in our innermost being, would he be looking around at our innermost being and saying, hey, this is comfortable. I'm welcome here. I've been, I've given, the doors have been opened wide. And would Jesus be just resting comfortably, reclined in the easy chair, saying, I love this, this is home. I couldn't be more comfortable dwelling in this location. Or would he be like, like my wife walking into a shed in Florida full of cockroaches? Ooh, this is disgusting. See, God wants truth in the innermost being. This truth dwell comfortably in your innermost being. So David's sitting here saying, look, here's who we are by nature, and here's what God wants. We are sinners by nature. God wants truth to be reigning in our innermost being. That's a, quite a contrast. When truth reigns in our innermost being, David says, in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. That's where real wisdom comes. He's not talking about knowledge. He's not talking about intellect. He's not talking about grade point average. He's not talking about how well you did on your SAT. He's not talking about the grades that you turn in at the end of the year. And he's not talking about how many Bible answers you can, you can give on a quiz. He's talking about wisdom, the practical skill of pleasing God with your life. That's totally different. That's totally different. Students, you won't be able to please God with your life until truth dwells in your innermost being. So, verse 5, look, here's our sin nature. Verse 6, look, here's what God wants for us. He wants us to have truth reigning, dwelling, resting comfortably in our innermost being. Well, if that's not the case, then what do we need? We need inward purity. Look at verse 7. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Hyssop. Does anybody know what hyssop is? You guys remember that word? It's kind of a funny word, isn't it? Not, it's not super common. But you remember? Tree branch. Exactly. It's a tree branch. Now, hyssop, okay, so I don't know. I, don't, I haven't done the work on this. I'm not sure if there's something comparable to hyssop that grows in Arizona. I don't know. But it was all over the place in, in Israel. And 
Hyssop would be specifically the tree branch that they would use in the practices in the, in the temple for purification. Let me just show you, real quick, let me show you two examples. So keep your finger in Psalm 51. This will be very fast. Go to Leviticus 14. So that's all the way at the beginning of your Bible. It's the third book, Leviticus 14. And we're going to read a description of purification. And particularly, I want you to notice the word hyssop. And it's a tree branch, and it's being used here in this purification process. So Leviticus 14, we're going to jump around a bit, but it's all all right here in Leviticus 14, and then we'll look at one more chapter. But first of all, just look quick at verse 4. The priest shall give orders to take two live, clean birds and a cedar wood and scarlet, a scarlet string and hyssop for the one who is to be cleansed. So already there's a mention of hyssop with this cleansing process as they're about to offer a sacrifice in the temple. Look at verse... um, Six, as for the live bird, he shall take it together with the cedar wood and the scarlet string and the hyssop and shall dip them and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was slain over the running water. So now the picture is taking that hyssop branch and dipping it in the blood and that's going to be a utensil for the purification process. Now skip over to verse 49. Verse 49. This is talking about cleansing a house that has been that it has had mildew or mold damage, and talking about cleansing that house when it's been replastered and you've removed all the mold, then the priest is supposed to show up. And verse 49 says, To cleanse the house, then he shall take two birds and cedar wood and a scarlet string and hyssop. And he shall slaughter the one bird in an earthenware vessel over running water. Then he shall take the cedar wood and the hyssop and the scarlet string with the live bird and dip them in the blood of the slain bird as well as in the running water and sprinkle the house seven times. So now, picture what's happening. This house was unclean because it was uninhabitable and it would have been dangerous. It would have, been, uh, would have produced bad health on the person living there. So they have to purify the house. And now the priest comes, he dips the hyssop in that slain bird's blood and sprinkles the house seven times with it as a symbolic act of this has been cleansed. Now, of course, that, that's not talking about spiritual realities. That's talking about physical realities of a house or of a sacrifice. One more example. Look at Numbers Look at Numbers. That's the next book over, fourth book in the Bible. Numbers chapter 19. Numbers chapter 19. Okay, Numbers chapter 19, and I just want you to look at verse 18. And this is how you would cleanse somebody who had been exposed to a uh, a dead person. They're ceremonially unclean because they had to dispose of a body. And in verse 18, a clean person shall take the hyssop and dip it in the water and sprinkle it on the tent and on, all, on the fur, furnishings and the persons who were there and on the one who touched the bone or the slain one or the one dying naturally or the grave. So wherever the person died, whoever had to take care of this person, everybody in the house. So when somebody died in the family, they would go purify the family, the tent, everything, uh, all the furnishings, and they would use hyssop and sprinkle everything. Now go back to Psalm 51. You see what David's doing here? David's looking at his heart and he's realizing, wow, here's who I am by nature. I'm corrupt by nature. God wants truth to be reigning in my heart. And I'm a mess. This is part of what it means to point your finger at yourself. I'm a mess. Okay, Lord, what I want you to do is I want you to take the the spiritual equivalent of hyssop and I want you to cleanse me in my inner man. I need to be clean. So we're beyond, students, 
We're beyond making up for your wrongs. We're beyond living the perfect life. We are at the level of we need to be cleansed in the inner man. Students, I can't tell you how many times I've shared the gospel with somebody and, and uh, asked them, do you, do, you know, are, are you, how, how are you going to do when you stand before the Lord? And, and so many times I hear people say, well, I think I'll do all right because I think my good outweighs the bad. I've heard that so many times. And sometimes I give people a hypothetical and I'll say, how old are you? you know, and they'll say how old they are. If they say 40, I'll pick a number like 80. If they're your age, if they were 15, I might say, let's just say you live, okay, you're, you're 15 and you've sinned against the Lord and you live 80 years and you live those last 65, let me make sure my math is right, 65 years and you live those last 65 years of your life perfectly as righteous as Jesus Christ. But you actually sinned before you were 15. You still have a sin nature. What about that? And suddenly, all of these religious games we play of just doing better, trying harder, being gooder, all these games we play just don't amount to anything. We need to be cleansed in the inner man. That's what we all need. I remember uh, when I first moved to Chicago as a young student, I, I moved from Kansas, and so I'd never lived in the big city. I went from a town of 180, not 180,000, 180 period, not a comma, 180, and I went to a city of 9 million, and uh, things are a little different in the city. And I remember our first snowfall in Chicago. The snow comes down, it was like a foot of snow, it was just amazing, you know, this, this like busy, dirty, grimy city suddenly just looked like winter wonderland. And I remember waking up one morning, looking at my dorm, and I'm like, wow, look at all this snow. And it was just amazing. I go walking to class, and I'm like, I feel like I'm living at the North Pole here. And all of a sudden, I come out of class like two hours later, and everything is brown. It was like the smog of the city, the exhaust from all the traffic, the splash from the roads, all the foot traffic on the sidewalks. It was just a, it was just a mess. It was like it went from being brilliant white to just this nasty brown mush. Like somebody rained coffee all over everything. It was just gross. And I was thinking about the need for inner purity in verse 7a. When David says, purify me with hyssop, I shall be clean. Listen to how he describes what happens if you're clean from the inside. If you're clean from the inside, then he says, you, I need you to wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. See, here's what happens. David is asking for internal purification. And if, I, if, if my insides are made pure, then guess what happens? My, my externals change too. If my heart is changed, if my heart is cleansed, then suddenly my actions are no longer impure. They're no longer selfish. They're no longer proud. Because on the inside, I'm pure, and I'm humble, and I'm broken, and I'm, and I'm selfless. Well, then my actions are going to be humble and pure and selfless. But if I change my behavior without internal purification, it's like putting snow all over Chicago. You give it two hours, and it's a mess again. It's filthy. Just a little behavior change. See, guys, students, we need to understand our need is for internal cleansing, internal purity. And that's what David is praying for here in verse 7. Verse 8, make me to hear joy and gladness. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Students, isn't that incredible? 
I mean, if I were writing this psalm, I think my flesh would probably have not gone directly toward joy. As I think about what it takes to respond to my sin rightly, if I see my sin rightly, and and I think other people look at sin and they think, oh, if you talk about sin too much, you're just going to be sad all the time. You, You see what David's doing here? He knows that if he sees his sin rightly, and he deals with it, and God purifies him from it on the inside out, he's going to have joy. Students, you understand that your path to your greatest joy, for your joy to be in Christ, is to see your sin rightly. You, you can look at your sin wrongly, and that's not going to help. That's not going to produce joy. But you can't look at your sin too much if you're looking at your sin biblically. Because if you're looking at your sin biblically, that's going to be the path towards your greatest joy. If you know what your sin really is, like we talked about last night, just go back to verse 4. God, you're blameless. You're blameless when you judge. You're justified when you speak. If you condemn me for that sin, you would be totally righteous to do so. When you know that that's true, and you see God cleansing you from the inside out, he's cleansing me from that? Verse 9, he's hiding his face from my sins. I mean... There are sins that, growing up that my parents never knew about. Watch this. There are sins growing up that I never knew about. I have committed sins that the only person who knows that I've done them are, is God. And if God hides his face from my sins, and in verse 9b, he blots out all my iniquities, are you kidding me? Is there any greater joy? I mean, I, I don't know. If I tried, I try, I've tried to create an illustration of this. And imagine, imagine a man who is a serial killer, and he gets caught, and he gets put on death row, and he gives, he's given seven-year seven sentence. And there he is on death row, and he's just in solitary confinement, and he's not going to see the light of day except for one hour, 23 hours a day in solitary confinement. One hour a day, he gets to go see sun, and he's still by himself. Food through a hole in the wall. And all of a sudden... Hey, Joe, time's up. You're out. You're free. What? I got a seven-year sentence. I'm in here for life. Nope. You're free. There's a bus waiting for you. Take you back to your family. I mean, a guy who just got set free from death row does not struggle with joy. (laughs) Students, if you see your sin rightly and you understand the forgiveness of God, you can't struggle with joy. Your joy is in the Lord. But what we need is internal purity. Here's what I want to do. We've got 10 minutes left. I was a little bit longer than I was hoping for. I, was, I, I might, I'm going to try, to try to wrap up 15 minutes and 10 here, so I'm going to try to condense. What I want to do, students, is I just want to take this stanza. So in verse 5 and 6, you've got human nature. You've got to look at your nature rightly. We're sinners. you also got to look at God's desire. He wants truth to be in the innermost being. So the solution then is we need purity. We need inward purity. We need truth to cancel out the, the lies that we're believing. But we've believed lies that have produced sin. How does that work? Well, let me give you some help. I gave you the illustration of the time when I was um, 16 or 17. I can't remember. I was driving my dad's truck. I knocked a tire off the rim, and I lied. I lied. Okay? I've got to start. I need truth to remain in the innermost being. I need truth in my inner man. The way I interpreted that in the moment was, yeah, I shouldn't have said that, but I don't even know how I interpreted it. 
I just said, but, and probably didn't say anything else. I didn't have any truth happening in my inner man as I was thinking about it. What, what's truth start with? Truth starts with verse 5. Okay, I'm a liar by nature. That would have been a huge help for me when I was 16. I'm a liar by nature. That's why I told a lie. It came out of me because that's who I am. I wouldn't have believed that. I would not have believed that truth. Look over at Psalm 58, verse 3. Psalm 58, verse 3. The wicked... Oh, I'll, I'll let you get there, sorry. Psalm 58, verse 3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. Those who speak lies go astray from birth. I mean, David is telling us here that we, we might not have the faculty of telling a lie until we're two, three, four, or five, depending on development, but we are liars by nature from birth. So before we can even tell a lie, we are liars by nature. That's a helpful verse. That would have helped me to start to believe truth. Okay, I told a lie. That means I'm a liar. But now... What's the solution? Okay, so now we're just going to keep this stanza that we just studied, and I'm going to ask you, student, what would have been the solution for me? So I'm just going to, you, you got you to think. Think about this. How would you have counseled me? If I was your friend, how would have you helped me? John, you know what you need to do is you got to stop lying. Well, is that true that I need to stop lying? Yeah. That pleases the Lord, right? Colossians 3 says, Obey your parents in the Lord, and yeah, this is well-pleasing to the Lord. So it pleases the Lord when I come under authority, when I obey the truth. That, that pleases the Lord, for sure. But if the problem is not just that I told a lie, but that I am a liar, then if that's the only solution to stop telling lies, that's like putting a Band-Aid on cancer. It's a superficial fix, isn't it? Suddenly, if you're helping me out, and you're like, man, I got this friend named John, and he just, he just wrecked his dad's pickup, and he lied about it. So I told him, just make sure you don't tell a lie next time. It's like telling a cancer patient, here you go, got you a Band-Aid. Here, put some ice on it, too. That'll keep the swelling down. It's totally superficial. The problem is much worse. I need to be a truth teller in my innermost being, and I am not. So the solution is not just... Stop lying. Of course, stop lying. And then if I am a liar, I'm going to keep lying. And that's going to prove I don't have the ability to stop lying. So what's the solution? The solution is I need truth to be dwelling in my inner man. Truth needs to be believed. Jesus should be invited in. And when Jesus is reigning in my heart, you know what I'm going to do? I'm not going to protect. I'm not going to cover. I'm going to expose my sin. Now, here's, here's what needs to happen. If truth were reigning in my heart at that moment, you, you, might be, you might be wondering, well, why did you tell a lie? Well, it makes a lot of sense. You don't want to get in trouble, right? That's probably what most of you are thinking. Honestly, you know, what I, you know why I lied? This is kind of embarrassing. I wasn't even that really that worried about getting in trouble. I was so selfish, I didn't want to have to t pay the cost of towing it down to the station to get the tire popped back onto the rim. I would have never admitted that when I was 16. But I, I still remember that to this day. I still remember that was my motive. If truth were reigning in the innermost being, I'd have been like, this is my dad's truck. It's my, my responsibility. I want to honor the Lord. I want to take care of the truck. I made a mistake and I need to fix it. Of course I should pay for that. 
But I had no, there was no desire to honor the Lord. There was a desire to love self. So suddenly, truth in the innermost being starts to help me understand what was so wicked about that lie. What was so wicked about that lie? It was not circumstantial. It wasn't that the, the curb was too narrow and that, oh, it's too expensive. It wasn't circumstantial. The problem was, I love myself. And I'm not interested in glorifying God. That's a whole different problem, isn't it? Than just, oh, just don't do that again. It's not a mistake. My problem was my worship. Truth wasn't reigning in the innermost being. Let me give, let me give you one more example. This one might be a little bit more, more uh, relevant to you all. One of the common, common sins that plague teenagers is jealousy. Let me just push this through. Let's take jealousy and let's just push this through this stanza. So we're thinking about Psalm 51, verses 5 through 9. How do we apply that? Let's say the sin is jealousy. Maybe it's jealousy of a sibling or a friend or a teammate. Maybe you're really jealous that they have something that you want. It might even be the money in their family, even the toys that they own. It might be um, the trips that their families can take. It might be that their, their, their family freedoms or their rules are different. They can get away with things that you can't get away with. Why can't my family be a little more lenient like this family? That would be so much more fun if I could do that and this and that. You might be jealous of their athletic ability. You might be jealous of their grade point average. You might be a, a jealous of how quickly they learn stuff and they don't have to cram and they don't have to study and they don't have to do homework. You might be jealous of their popularity. You might be jealous. I mean, we, the list goes on, doesn't it? Things that we can look at and say, I wish, wish I had that. I wish I was that. How do we process this? How do we respond rightly to that sin? I remember one time my, on my basketball team, there was a guy right when the uh, Nike, you, this is like so beyond your years, Nike had just come out with the pumps. You reach down and you're... It's like the first year that Nike ever made a pump. So it's like a dinosaur shoe now. Uh, and they were, they were uh, well, they're probably not that expensive now. They were $130. And like a normal pair of shoes at, at you know, Walmart was like 20 So this kid had the $130 pair of shoes. I had the $20 pair of shoes. And I remember just thinking, man, if only I had the Nike pumps, I could dunk. I was a seventh grader. I'm like, I could dunk. <laughs> I was so jealous of his shoes. So silly, but certainly that's our heart. How do I process that? Well, if I start in verse 5, then I know that the problem is not that he has the pumps and I don't. The problem is I am a coveter by nature. Okay, so I start there. Ooh, problem is not I'm on this guy's basketball team. It's not that he's better than me or I'm better than him. Not that his parents have more money or that they would have spent that money on those shoes and I don't have those shoes. It's none of that. The problem is me. The problem is, in my nature, I want stuff that I don't have. What are the lies here? The lies here are, I need that, I deserve that, my life would be better with it. You know what, I, you know what I had, I've had to do over the years? I've had to just explain to myself and preach to myself. I've had to preach the truth. You know what, John? That's your opinion. And then what do we usually say? We're all entitled to our own opinion. No, we're not. If our opinion goes against God's word, then we are not entitled to throwing our fists in God's face. So my opinion is, I need this God. I should have this God. You haven't given this to me, God. The implication is, I'm saying, God, you've made a mistake. Let's trace this out a little bit. What am I believing? 
I'm believing I know better than God what's good for me. God, if I were running the universe, John Anderson would have had Nike pumps in seventh grade. You made a mistake. You see how, see how sad that is? It's so much more corrupt than just, oh, he's got a nice pair of shoes that I like. It's, I am throwing mud at God. That's a sin against God. And that's my nature. Wow, suddenly it takes on a whole new light. Suddenly I'm seeing it rightly. Suddenly I'm seeing this is not just circumstance that I happen to be on a rich kid's basketball team. It's, I've got a heart that is so arrogant, it would question God's goodness and God's wisdom. Yikes. I am a mess. So, what's the solution? Those lies need to be repented of. They need to be put off. But I can't just stop believing lies and believe nothing. i got to put off those lies by believing truth. So let's just keep this illustration of the uh, Nike pumps just for, just for our own entertainment. It's a little bit easier maybe than using some other example. The Nike pumps. What do I have to believe? What do I need to believe? What, what truth is going to help me not believe those lies? Let me just show you a few. This is so, so, so fascinating. Let's just start. Let's go back to Isaiah. Um, we're going we're to jump around. We've only got a few minutes left. We're going to jump around here for just a second. So keep your fingers ready. This is like sword drills. Let me give you about four passages. And then we're going to make some comments. Isaiah 14, verse 27. For the Lord of hosts has planned. I'm sorry. I'm hearing pages turn here. I'll give you a second. Okay, we're going, Roy, is this okay? Can I get like just a few more minutes here? Okay, sorry, I'm just a little bit over here. Isaiah 14, 27. For the Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? And as for his outstretched hand, who can turn it back? This verse says, God makes a plan and nobody can thwart it. God plans to do something and nobody can stop it. So in other words, whatever is happening in your life is actually designed by God, and nobody can tamper with it. Hold on to that thought, and let's connect that to Isaiah 48, 11. Isaiah 48, 11. God says, for my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. And what's it mean to act for your own sake? Think for my own benefit, for my own gain, for my own advantage. And that's not selfish. That's actually glorious. God's the only being in the universe who should be acting for his own advantage because he's worthy of everything being for his own glory and his own benefit. In fact, that's for our good if everything is for God's glory and his own benefit. That's why God does anything. It's for his own benefit. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to another. This is one of God's greatest attributes, that he will never commit idolatry. He's committed to his own glory. And so everything he does is for his own glory. So Isaiah 40, 14, 27, he does whatever he's planned, and nobody can affect it, so nobody can interfere. So nobody's made your life less than God's design. Isaiah 48, 11, whatever's happening in your life is for God's greatest glory. 
And now, let's connect that to Romans 8, 28. This is the famous one that you're all familiar with. So now in the New Testament, Romans 8, Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Do you realize that not only does God do whatever he wants, and nobody can turn his hand back, the what he wants is driven by his glory, and his glory is for our spiritual good. He works everything for our spiritual best. Our spiritual best is not, in that case, for me, not that I would have Nike pumps. That was actually for my best. I was not even a Christian when it happened, but he called me six years later into his kingdom, and the fact that I did not have Nike pumps as a seventh grader was for his glory and for my good. You say, well, how? Well, I don't necessarily know, other than it became a sermon illustration in this camp. <laughs> Maybe that was worth it. It was worth it. What's so corrupt is that I would question God, why are you doing this? If truth reigns in my innermost being, I would say, God's never done any wrong. He's got Nike pumps. I don't. That's for God's glory and for my good. Great. You know, you see what happens there? It just kills jealousy. Jealousy just died because I started believing truth. Truth became reigning in the innermost being. And that's practically how sins are put to death in our lives. So hopefully that's helpful. I just wanted to thank you for letting me take a little bit longer this morning because I wanted to kind of walk through a practical example of applying this stanza. So let me just quickly uh, close with a word of prayer and then we will head off to small groups. Lord, thank you so much for clarity of your word and just we're so grateful for this psalm. Once again, this, each stanza we look at just continues to blow us away at the clarity and I pray, Lord, that we would have um, help from your spirit to apply this. Lord, we want to point the finger at ourselves and we want to rightly have recognized Godward sorrow and a longing for inward purity. And I pray that, Lord, that as we've talked about these truths, for, for any student who um, does not have a desire for inward purity or who believes that he does not lack inward purity, I pray that by your Spirit's power, you would bring conviction. And my prayer for that um, dear student would be that you just help him in this moment to see his own heart the way that you see it. Give that um, young um, man or young woman, give that uh, student clarity right now so that they could see what you see about them, that um, your interpretation of their heart would become their conviction, and that by this means you would drive them to their need for inward purity. Uh, Lord, for the students here who are yours and who are walking with you, who are striving to please you, striving to honor you, and perhaps some are, are concerned because they see the power of sin and they're really, really burdened by the fact that they, they keep sinning. Certainly, Lord, I pray that the very fact that King David, a man after your own heart, <coughs> would commit sin like this and then write about it is a testimony that we never stop sinning until glorification. But I do pray that you give them encouragement and hope in seeing really kind of the cause of, of why sin is so powerful at times. It, it, it only becomes powerful when we continue believing lies in our inner man. I pray that they would see um, deliverance, 
and they would see power in the gospel, power in the truth, as they addressed the inner, the inner thoughts, the inner convictions that produce the lies, that produce the jealousy, that produce the impurity. And then, Lord, as a result, I pray that they would just rejoice, that they would have joy, that the joy of the Lord would be theirs, because they would see not only that their sins have been removed and the payment has been paid in full by Christ on their behalf and that there is no more guilt, but they would also see inward purity being established so that there is an increasing practice of righteousness in their lives. And that by this means, they would just grow in assurance and that they would just bask in joy of knowing that they are your child. Lord, there's no other way for assurance than to see practical outworkings of inward purity. Do not let any student be deceived, imagining that they have inward purity if there's an increasing external impurity. Whatever the production of their life is, is is a testimony of who they are. And so give them assurance by producing righteousness in their lives as the outflow of the work that you're doing in their hearts. Of course, that's always imperfect, Lord. But I do pray that they would rejoice at seeing increasing righteousness from an inward purity. In your name we pray. Amen.